giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Victoria Guido, and with me today is Saif Latvi, CTO and co-founder of Axiom, the best home for your event data. Saif, thank you for joining me. Hey, everybody. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is awesome. Uh, I love the name of the podcast, given that I used to compete in robotics. What? All right, well, we're going to have to talk about that. And I also want to introduce a guest co-host today, since we're talking about cloud and observability and data. I invited Joe Ferris, ThoughtBot CTO and Director of Development of our platform engineering team, Vision Control. Welcome, Joe. How are you? Good, thanks. Good to be back again. Okay. I am excited to talk to you all about observability, but I need to go back to Safe's comment on competing with robots. Can you tell me a little bit more about what robots you've built in the past? I didn't build robots. I used to program them. Remember the Sony iBOS? Sony made these dog robots, and we would make them compete. There was, a, there was an international competition where we made them play soccer, and they have to be completely autonomous. They only communicate via Bluetooth or via wireless protocols, and you only have the camera as your sensor as well as a chest, sens- a chest sensor to know if the ball's near you. And then, yeah, you make them play football against each other, five, four, four versus four, with a goalkeeper and everything. Just look it up, RoboCup Ibo. Look it up on YouTube. And I, uh, 2008 uh, world champion with the German team. That sounds incredible. What kind of crowds are you drawing out for a robot soccer match? Is that a lot of people involved in that? You would be surprised how big the RoboCup competition is. It's ridiculous. I want to go. I'm ready. I want to like, I'll look it up and find out when the next one is. The, no more Sony robots, but other robots. Now there's two-legged robots. So they make them play as two-legged robots, much slower than four-legged robots, but perks. Wait, so the, the robots you were playing soccer with had four legs that they're running around on? The, yeah, they were dogs. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they're all, you all get the same robots and we just, it's just a competition on software, right? On a software level. And some other competitions within the RoboCup actually use, you build your own robot and stuff like that. But this one was, it's called the Standard League, where we all have a robot and we have to program it. And the Standard Robot was a dog. Yeah, I think back then, we're talking, that's it's been a long time. I think it started 2001 or something. I think the competition started 2001, 2002. And I compete from 2006 to 2008. Robots back then were just, you know, simple. Robots today are way too complicated. <laughs> Even AI is more complicated. That's right. Yeah, everything's gotten a lot more complicated. <laughs> I'm so curious how you went from being a world champion robot dog soccer player <laughs> programmer <laughs> to where you are today with Axiom. Can you tell me a little bit more about your journey? The journey is interesting because it came from open source. I used to do open source on the side a lot, part of the GNOME project. That's where I met Neil and the rest of my team, Mikhail, Camstrip, the, the whole crowd, basically. We worked on GNOME, we worked on Ubuntu. They were like, most of them were working professionally on it. I was working for another company, but we worked on the same projects. We ended up at Xamarin, which was bought by Microsoft. And then we ended up doing Axiom. But we've been around each other professionally around since 2009, most of us. It's like a little family. But how we ended up exactly in observability, I think is just trying to fix pain points in my life. Yeah, I was reading through the docs on Axiom and an interesting point you make about organizations having to choose between how much data they have and how much they want to spend on it. So maybe you can tell me a little bit more about that pain point and what you really found in the early stages that you wanted to solve. 
So the early stages of what we want to solve, we were mainly dealing with, so the early, early stage, we were actually trying to be there, that competitor, where we're going to be self-hosted. Eventually, we focused on logs because we found out that's what was a big problem to for most people, just event data, not just metric, but generally event data, so logs, traces, etc. We built out our own logs database from completely from scratch. And one of the things we, we stumbled upon was basically you have three things when it comes to logging, which is low cost, low latency, and large scale. That's what everybody wants, but you can't get all three of them. You can only get two of them. And we opted, like we took, we chose large scale and low cost. And when it comes to latency, we say it should be just fast enough, right? And that's where we focused on. And this is how we started building it. And with that, this is how we managed to stand out by just having way lower cost than anybody else in the industry and deal with large scale. That's really interesting. And how did you approach making the ingestion pipeline for masses amount of data more efficient? Just make it coordination free as possible, right? And uh, get rid of Kafka because Kafka just, you know, drains your, it's, it's where you throw in money. Like maintaining Kafka is throwing, it's like back then Elasticsearch, right? Elasticsearch was the biggest part of your infrastructure that would cost money. Now it's also Kafka. So we found a way to have our own internal way of queuing things without having to rely on Kafka. As I said, we wrote everything from scratch to make it work. Like every now and then I think that we can spin this out of the the company and make it a new product. But now that we were eyes on the prize, right? It's interesting to hear that somebody who spent so much time in the open source community ended up rolling their own solution to so many problems. Do you feel like you had some lessons learned from open source that led you to reject solutions like Kafka or how did that journey go? I don't think I'm rejecting Kafka. The problem is, is how Kafka is built, right? Kafka is still, you have to set up all these servers, they have to communicate, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't build it in a way where it's, where it's stateless. And that's what we're trying to go to. We're trying to make things as stateless as possible. So Kafka was never built for the cloud native era. And you can't really rely on SQS or something like that because it won't deal with this high throughput. So that's why I say like we will sacrifice some latency, but at least the co- cost is low. So if messages show after half a second or a second, I'm good. It doesn't have to be real time for me. So I had to write a couple of these things. But also, it doesn't mean that we reject open source. Like we actually do like open source. We open source a couple of libraries. We contribute back to open source, right? We needed a solution back then for that problem, and we couldn't find any. And maybe one day we'll open source what we have, right? Yeah, I was going to ask if you considered open sourcing any of your high latency, high throughput solutions? Not high latency. Make it sound bad. <laughs> you make it sound bad. It's like fast enough, right? I'm not going to compete on milliseconds because also I'm competing with ClickHouse. I don't want to compete with ClickHouse. ClickHouse is low latency and large scale, right? But then the cost is you know off the charts a bit sometimes. I'm going the other route. Like, you know what? Fast enough. Like how, you know, if it's under two, three seconds, we're ha- everybody's happy, right? If, you're anal- if the results come within two, three seconds, everybody's happy. If you're going to build, build a real-time trading system on top of us, I'll strongly advise against that. But if you're building, you know, you're, you're looking at dashboards, you're, you're, you're more in the observability field, yeah, we, we're good. Yeah, I'm curious what you found, uh, like which customer personas that market really resonated with? Like, is there a particular like industry type where you're noticing they really want to lower their cost and they're okay with this just fast enough latency? Honestly, with the current recession, everybody's okay with giving up some uh, some of the speed <laughs> to reduce the money. Because I think you're it's not linear reduction. It's more exponential reduction at this point, right? You give up a second, you're saving 30%. You give up two seconds, all of a sudden you're saving 
80%. So I would say in the beginning, everybody thought they need everything to be very, very fast. And now they're realizing, you know, with the cost, with the limitations you have around your budget and spending, you're like, okay, I'm okay with the speed. And again, we're not slow. I'm just saying people realize they don't need everything under a second. They're okay with waiting for two seconds. That totally resonates with me. And I'm curious if you can add maybe a non-technical or a real life example of like how this impacts the operations of a company or organization. Like if you can give us a, like a businessy example of how this impacts how people work. I, yeah, I don't know how, like how do people work on that? They, nothing changed really. They're still doing the, like really nothing. Cause in that aspect is you run, you, you run a query. And again, as I said, you're, you're, you're not getting the result in a second. You're just waiting two seconds or three seconds. And it's there. So nothing really changed. Uh, I think people can wait three seconds. And we're still like, when I say this, we're still faster than most others. We're just not as fast as people who are trying to compete on a millisecond level. Yeah, that's okay. Maybe I'll, I'll take it back even like a step further, right? Like our audience is is really um, sometimes as founders who almost have no formal technical training or background. So we talk about observability. Sometimes people who work in DevOps and operations all understand it and kind of know why it's important <laughs> um, and what we're talking about. Um, so maybe you could like go back to... Oh, if you're asking about new types of people who've been using it. Yeah, like if, if you were going to explain to like a non-technical founder, like why your product is important or like how people in their organization might use it, what would you say? Oh, okay. Put it like that. It's more of a, if you have data, timestamp data, and you want to run analytics on top of it. So that could be transactions. That could be web vitals. Random counts. Every time somebody visits, you have a timestamp. So you can count like how many visitors visited the website and what, you know, all these kind of things. That's where you want to use something like Axiom. That's outside the DevOps space, of course. I mean, DevOps space, there's so many other things to use Axiom for, but that's outside the DevOps space. And we actually, we implemented a zero config integration with uh, Vercel that kind of went viral. And we were for a while the number one enterprise Vercel integration because so many people were using it. So Vercel users are usually not necessarily writing the most complex backends, but a lot of things are happening on the front end side of things. And we would be giving them dashboards, automated dashboards about, you know, latencies and how long a request took and how long the response took and the content type and the, the status codes, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a huge user base around that. I like that. And that's something for me, you know, as a managing director of our <laughs> platform engineering team, I want to talk more to founders about, it's great that you put this product and this app out into the world, but how do you know that people are actually using it? How do you know that people like maybe, yeah, they're all quitting in the, after the first day and not coming back to your app, or maybe like the page isn't loading or like, it's not working as I expected it to. And like, if you don't have anything observing what users are doing in your app, then it's going to be hard to show that you're getting any traction um, and know where you need to go in and make corrections and adjust. We have two ways of doing this right now internally. We use our own tools to see like how are, who are who's sending us data. We have a deployment that's monitoring another that's monitoring production deployment, and we're just you know seeing how people are using it, how much data they're sending every day, who stops sending data, who's spiked in sending data, et cetera, et cetera. But we also have, we're using Mixpanel, and uh, Dominic, our head of product, implemented a couple of key metrics for to that for that specifically. So we know like what's the average time until somebody starts writing, going from building its own queries with the builder to writing APL or how long it takes them from, you know, running uh, two queries to five queries. And, you know, we, we just start measuring these things now. 
And it, it's been going healthy. We've been growing healthy around that. So we tend to measure user interaction, but also we, we tend to measure how much data is being sent. Because let's keep in mind, usually people go in and check for things if there's a problem. So if there's no problem, the user won't interact with us much unless there's a notification that kicks off. We also just check like how much data is being sent to us the whole time. That makes sense. Like you can't just rely on like, well, if it was broken, they would write a <laughs> like like a good question or something. So you, how do you get those metrics and that data around their interactions? So that that's really interesting. So I wonder if we can go back and talk about, you know, we, we already mentioned a little bit about like the early days of Axiom and how you got started. Was there anything that you found in the early discovery process that was surprising and made you pivot strategy? A um, couple things. Basically, people don't really care about the tech as much as they care as the product and the packaging. So that's something that we had to learn. And number two, continuous feedback. Continuous feedback changed the way we worked completely, right? And you know, after that, we opened. We had a Slack channel, then we opened a Discord channel, and like just this continuous feedback coming in just helps us with iterating, helps us with prioritizing, etc. And that changed the way we, we actually developed the product. You did Slack and Discord? No, not no Slack anymore. No, we had a community Slack. We had a community this Slack. Now there's no community Slack. We only have a community Discord. And the community Slack is uh, the, the sorry. We internally we use Slack, but there's a community Discord for the community. How do you keep that staffed? Is it like everybody's in the Discord during working hours? Is it, is it somebody's job to watch out for community questions? I think everybody gets involved now, just as is, and you can see it if you go on our Discord. You'll just see it. Just everyone just gets involved. I think just people are passionate about what they're doing. At least most people are involved on Discord, right? Because it's there's like Discord, the help sections, and people just asking questions and other people answering. And now we reach a point where people in the community start answering the questions to for other people in the community. So that's that's how we see it starting to become a healthy community, etc. But that's one of my favorite things when I see somebody from the community answering somebody else. I, that that's a, that's a highlight for me. Actually, we hired somebody from that community because they were so active. Yeah, I think one of the biggest signs that a product is healthy is when there's a healthy ecosystem building up around it. Yeah, and Discord reminds me of the old day of, of, of open sources like IRC, just with memes now. But because a lot of us come from the old IRC days, being on Discord and being chatting around, etc., cetera, et cetera, just gives us this momentum back, gave us this momentum back, whereas Slack always felt a bit too businessy to me. Slack is like IRC with emoji. Discord is IRC with memes. <laughs> I would say Slack reminds me somehow of MSN Messenger, right? I feel like there's a huge slam on MSN Messenger here. <laughs> what do you guys use internally? Slack or I think you're using Slack, right? Or Teams. Don't tell me you're using Teams. No, we're, we're using Slack. Okay, good. Because I should talk. I like that. That's all I should talk there when I start talking about Teams. So I remember that one thing Google did once and that, that failed miserably. Google still has like seven active chat products. Like I think every department or every like group of engineers just uses one of them internally. I'm not sure. Never got that point. But hey, who am I to judge? I just feel like I end up using all of them and then I'm just rotating between different tabs all day long. You maybe talked me into using Discord. I feel like I've been resisting it, but you got me with the memes. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth it. It's more entertaining, more noise, but more entertaining. You feel it's alive. Whereas Slack is... Also, because there's no, there's no like histories forever. So you always go back and like, oh my God, what the hell is this? Yeah, I have a, I like all of them. I'll do anything. Um, yeah, they should be using Axiom in the background. Just send data to Axiom. We can keep your chat history. Yeah, maybe. I'm so curious because, you know, you mentioned something about how you realize that 
it didn't matter really how cool the tech was if the product packaging wasn't also appealing to people because you seem really excited about what you built. So I'm curious to just tell us a little bit more about how you went about trying to like promote this thing you built or was, was like the customer, the continuous feedback really early on or how did that all kind of come together? The continuous feedback helped us with performance, but actually getting people to sign up and pay money. It started early on, but with Vercel, it kind of skyrocketed, right? And that's mostly because we went with the whole zero config approach where it's just literally two clicks and all of a sudden your Vercel is sending your data to Axiom and that's it. We will create the, so, and we worked, we worked very closely with Vercel to do this, to make this happen, which was awesome. Like, yeah, hats off them. They were fantastic. And just two clicks, three clicks away. And all of a sudden you, we create the Axiom organization for you with the data set for you. And they were sending, and the data is being, and the data from Vercel is being forwarded to it. I think that packaging was, was so simple that it made people try it out quickly and then the experience of actually using Axiom was sticky, so they continued using it. And then the price was so low because we, we give 500 gigs for free, right? You send us 500 gigs of, uh, a month of logs for free, and we don't care. And uh, we can, you can start off here with one terabyte for 25 bucks, so people just start signing up. Now, before that, it was five terabytes a month for $99, and then we changed the plan. But yeah, it was cheap enough, so people just start sending us more and more and more data eventually. They weren't thinking... We change the way people start thinking of what am I going to send to Axiom or what am I going to send to my locks provider or lock storage to how much more can I send? And I think that's what we wanted to reach. We wanted people to think, like, how much more can I send? You mentioned latency and cost. I'm curious about the other big challenge we've seen with observability platforms, including logs, is, is cardinality of labels. Was there anything you had to sacrifice up front in terms of cardinality to manage either cost or volume? No, not really, because the way we designed it was that we should be able to deal with high cardinality from scratch, right? I mean, there's open source ways of doing, like if you look at how, like a column store. If you look at a column store and every dimension is its own column, it's just that becomes like you can, you can limit on the amount of columns you're creating, but you should never limit on the amount of different values in a column could be. So if you're having something like stat tags, right, let's say host name. Like host name should be a column, but then the different host names you have, we never limit that. So the cardinality on on on, on, a, on a value is something that is unlimited for us, and the card and we don't really see it in cost. It doesn't really hit us on cost. It reflects a bit on compression if you get in technical details of that, because you know high cardinality means a lot of different data, so compression is harder. But uh, it's not repetitive. But then if you look at you know, oh, I want to send a lot of different types of fields not values, but fields. So you have host name and uh, latency and whatnot, et cetera. Yeah, that's, that's where limitations start because then they have, it's like you're going to a wide range of, in a wider dimension. But even that we, yeah, we can deal with thousands at this point. And we realize like most people will not need more three or four. It's like a, a Postgres table. You don't need more than three to 4,000 columns else you're, you know, you're, you're doing a lot. I think it's actually pretty compelling in terms of cost, though. Like That's one of the things we've had to be most careful about in terms of containing cost for metrics and logs. Is a lot of providers will they'll either charge you based on the number of unique metric combinations or the performance suffers greatly. Like um, We've used a lot of Prometheus-based solutions. Um, and so when we're working with developers, even though they don't need more than you know a few dozen metric combinations most of the time, it's hard for people to think of what they need up front. It's much easier after you've deployed to be able to query your data and slice it retroactively based on what you're seeing. 
That, that's the detail. When you say we're using Prometheus, a lot of the metrics tools out there are using, just like Prometheus, are losing, using the Gorilla data structure. And the real data structure was never designed to deal with high cardinality labels. So basically, to put it in a simple way, every combination of tags you send for metrics is its own file on disk. That's like the very simple way of explaining this. And then when you're trying to search through everything, right, and you have a lot of these combinations, I actually have to get all these files from disk and merge them back together. You know, and then they're chunked, etc. So it's a problem. Generally, how metrics are doing it, most metrics uh, products are using it, even Victoria metrics, et cetera. What they're doing is they're using either the Prometheus data, TSDB data structure, which is based on Gorilla. Influx was doing the same thing. They pivoted to using more a model like the ones we use and Honeycomb use, right? So we might not be as fast on metrics side as these highly optimized, but then when it comes to high, when, but when, once we start dealing with high cardinality, we will be faster than those solutions. And that's on a very technical level. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I realize we're getting pretty technical here. Uh, maybe it's worth defining cardinality for the audience. Defining cardinality to the I, I mean, we just did that, right? What do you think, Victoria? Do you know what cardinality is now? Okay, now I'm like, do I know? I was like, I think I know what it means. Cardinality is like, let's say you have a piece of data like an event or a transaction. Yeah, it, it, it's like the distinct count on a property. That gives you the cardinality of a property. Yes, right. It's like how many pieces of information you have about that one event, basically. Yeah. But with some traditional metric store, it's, it's easy to make mistakes. For example, you could have unbounded cardinality by including response time as one of the, the labels. Tags. And then it's just kind of... Oh, no, no, no. Let, let me give you a better one. I put in timestamp at some point in my life. Yeah, I feel like everybody's done that one. <laughs> I put a system timestamp at some point in my life. There was the actual timestamp and there was a system timestamp that I would put because I wanted to know when the... Because I couldn't control the timestamp and the only timestamp I had was a system timestamp, I would always add the actual timestamp of when that event actually happened into a metric. And yeah, that did not scale. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Are you an entrepreneur or startup founder looking to gain confidence in the way forward for your idea? At ThoughtBot, we know you're tight on time and investment, which is why we've created targeted one-hour remote workshops to help you develop a concrete plan for your product's next steps. Over four interactive sessions, we work with you on research, product design sprint, critical path, and presentation prep so that you and your team are better equipped with the skills and knowledge for success. Find out how we can help you move the needle at tbot.io slash entrepreneurs. I wonder if you could maybe share a, like a story about when it's gone wrong and you've suddenly charged a lot of money <laughs> just to get information about what's happening in the system. Any like personal experiences with observability that kind of informed what you did with Axiom? Oof, I have a very bad one, like a very, very bad one. I used to work for a company. We had to deploy Elasticsearch on Windows servers and was US East One. So just a combination of Elasticsearch back in 2013-14 was with, together with Azure. And Windows Server was not a good idea. So you, you see where this is going, right? I see where it's going. Eventually, we had, like, we get all these problems because uh, we used Elasticsearch and Kibana for, to, to, as our you know, observability platform to measure everything around the product we were building. And funny enough, it cost us more than actually maintaining the infrastructure of the product. But not just that, it also kept me up longer because most of the downtimes I would get were not because of the product going down is because my Elasticsearch cluster started going down. 
And there's reasons for that because back then Microsoft Azure thought that it's okay for any um, VM to lose connection with the rest of the VMs for 30 seconds per day. So, and then all of a sudden you have Elasticsearch with a split frame problem. And there was a phase where I started getting alerted so much that back then my partner threatened to leave me. So I bought a, uh, what I think is a shock bracelet or shock collar via Bluetooth. And I connected it to phone for any notification. And I, I, got, I bought that off Alibaba, by the way. And I would charge it at night, put it on my wrist and go to sleep. And then when alert happens, it will fully discharge the battery on me every time. Okay, I have to admit, I did not see that where that was going. Yeah, did that for a while. Definitely did not save my relationship either. But uh, eventually that was the point where, you know, we started looking into other observability tools like Datadog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where the actual journey began where we moved away from Elasticsearch and Kibana to look for something, okay, that we don't have to maintain ourselves and we can use, et cetera. So it's not about cost as much as it's just pain. Yeah, I'd say there's a real pain point, actual physical and emotional pain point. <laughs> <laughs> what like motivates you to keep going with Axiom and to keep, it's like the wind in your sails to keep working on it? There's a couple of things. I love working with my team. So honestly, I just wake up and a couple people on my team are just like, I just love working with them. They're a lot of fun to work with, and they challenge me, and I challenge them back, and uh, I upset them a lot, and uh, they can't upset me, but I upset them. But I love working with them. I love working with that team. And the other thing is getting, like, having this constant feedback from customers just makes you want to do more and, and you know, close sales, et cetera. This is, it's, it's interesting, like, how I'm a very technical person. I'm more interested in sales because sales means your product works, the product, the technical part, et cetera. Because if the technically it's not working, you can't build a product on top of it. And if you're not selling it, then what's the point? You only sell when the product is good, more or less, unless you're Oracle. I had someone uh, ask me about Oracle recently. Actually, they're like, are you considering going back to it? And I, I'm just maybe a little allergic to it from having a federal consulting background, but maybe they'll come back around. I don't know. We'll see. Did you sell your soul back then? <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like I just grew up in a place where that's what everyone did was all. It was Oracle IBM or... I know HP back in the day. Yeah, well, basically, when you're working on applications that were built in like the 80s, <laughs> Oracle is like this hot new database technology that they just got five years ago. So that's just, yeah, interesting. Although from a database perspective, they did a lot of the innovations, a lot of first innovations could have come from Oracle. From a technical perspective, they're ridiculous. I'm not sure if they're pro from a product perspective how good they are, but I know their sales team is so big, so huge. They don't care about the product anymore. They can still sell. Yeah, I think, you know, everything in, in tech is cyclical. So, you know, if they have the right strategy and they're making some interesting changes over there, there's always a chance. <laughs> Certain use cases. I mean, I think that's the interesting point about working in technology is that, the, you know, every company is a tech company. And so there's just a lot of different types of people, personas and use cases for different types of products. So I wonder, you know, you kind of mentioned earlier that like everyone is interested in Axiom, <laughs> but, you know, I don't know, are you narrowing the market or like, how are you trying to kind of um, focus your messaging and your sales for Axiom? I'm trying to focus on developers. So we're really trying to focus on developers because the experience around observability is crap. It's stupid expensive. Sorry for being straightforward, right? And that's what we're trying to change. And we're targeting developers mainly. We want developers to, to like us. And we'll find all these different types of developers who, who are using it. And that's the interesting thing. And because of them, we start adding more and more features. Like, you know, we added tracing. And now that enables like billions of events 
push through for, you know, again, for almost no money, again, $25 for, for a month for a terabyte of data. And we're doing this with metrics next. And that's just to address the developers. We, we, the developers who've been giving us feedback and the market demand. I will sum it up the, again, like the experience is crap and it's stupid expensive. I think that's the goods of observability It's just that that's, that's, that's how it, how it sum it up. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself when you're still a developer, now that you're CTO, what advice would you give yourself? Besides avoiding shock collars. <laughs> yes. Get people's feedback quickly. So you know you're on the right track. I think that's very, 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 very important. Don't just work in the dark or don't go too long into stealth mode because eventually people catch up. Also, ship when you're 80% ready because 100% is too late. I think it's the same thing here. Ship often and early? Yeah, even if it's not fully ready. Still feedback. Yeah, ship often and early and talk to people. <laughs> just, Do you feel like as a, a developer, did you have the skills you needed to be able to get the most out of those feedback and out of those conversations you're having with people around your product? I still don't think I'm good enough. You're just constantly learning, right? I just accept that I'm part of a team and I have my contributions, but as an individual, I still don't think I I know enough. I think I just, there's more I need to learn at this point. I wonder uh, what questions do you have for me or Joe? How did you start your podcast and why the name? Oh man, I hope I can answer. So the podcast was started, I think it's like, we're actually about to be at our 500th episode. So I'm only been a host for the last year. Maybe Joan even knows more than I do. But what I what I recall is that one person at ThoughtBot thought it would be a great idea to start a podcast, and then they did it. And it seems like the whole company is obsessed with robots. I'm not really sure where that came from. There used to be a tiny robot in the office. That's what I remember. And people started using that as like the mascot. And then, yeah, that's it. That's the whole thing. Was the robot doing anything useful or just being cute? It's just cute. And it's hard to make a robot cute. Was it a real robot or was it like a... No, there was at one point a toy robot. The name, I actually forget the the origin origin of the name, but the name Giant Robots comes from our blog. So we named the podcast the same as the blog, Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots. Yes, it's called Transformers. Yeah, I like it. It's, I mean, (laughs) now I feel like... We gotta get more like robot dogs involved in the podcast. <laughs> like I wanted to add one thing when, when we talked about you know you know what 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 gets me going, and I, I want to mention that I have a six month old son, a six month old son now. He definitely adds a lot of motivation for me to wake up in the morning and work. He also makes me wake up regardless if I want to or not. Yeah, you said you had invented an alarm clock that never turns off, never snoozes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I have the same thing, but it's my dog. But he does snooze, actually. He'll just, like, get tired and go back to sleep. <laughs> so I have a question. Do dogs have a Tamagotchi face? Because, like, my, my son, the first three months, was like a Tamagotchi. Hmm. It was easy to read oh, him. Oh, yeah. Noisy, uh-huh. but easy. Yes, yes. Now, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Like the last month, I was like, he has opinions. Mm-hmm. At six months. I think, I think it's because I raised him in Europe. I should take him back to the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> no you know, dogs totally have a, a like... A communication style, you know. I pretty much know what he wants. I, I mean, I can read his mind, obviously. <laughs> yeah, sure, but but that's when they grow a bit. But what's when they were very when he was when the dog was very young? Yeah, they. I mean, they also learn like your stuff too. So they like learn 
how to get you to do stuff. They're like, I know she'll feed me if I'm sitting here. <laughs> and how much is one dog year? Seven, seven years? years. Seven years. Yeah, seven years. Yeah. So basically, in one year, like three months, he's ready. In one month, he's you know seven months. So he's like, yeah. Yeah. In a year, they're like teenagers, and then in two years, they're like full adults. Yeah. So and so the first month is basically going through the first six months of a human kind, human being. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you pass the, the first two days or three days are the Tamagotchi phase that I'm talking about. <laughs> I read this book and it was like to understand dogs. It's like, they're just like humans. They're trying to like maximize the number of positive experiences that they have. So like, if you think about that framing around all your interactions about like, maybe you're trying to get your son to do something, you can be like, okay, how do I like, I don't know, train him that good things happen when he does the things I want him to do. <laughs> That's kind of uh, maybe manipulative, but effective. You so say you're not learning baby sign language. You're just like going off facial expressions. I, I started. I know how mama looks like. I know how dada looks like. I know how more looks like slowly. And he already does this thing that I know that when he's, when he's uncomfortable, he starts opening and closing his hands. Mm -hmm. And when he's completely uncomfortable and basically that's, that's his, he needs to go sleep, he starts pulling his own hair. <laughs> I do the same thing. You pull your own hair when you go. <laughs> See, I don't have that. No. I don't have. I think hair. I start. I do start like touching my head, though. Yeah. Azure, to Azure took the last bit of hair I had, went away with Azure, Elastic Search, and the Shock Collar. <laughs> I have none of them left. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. I should sue Elastic Search for this shit. <laughs> Will you let, let me know how that goes. Maybe there's more people who could join your lawsuit. You know, class <laughs> action. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to also just highlight is right now one of the things that also makes the company move forward is we realized that in a single domain we proved ourselves very valuable to specific companies right so that was a big big thing milestone for us and now we're trying to move into a handful of domains and see which one of those work out the best for us does that make sense yeah and i'm curious what are the biggest challenges or hurdles that you associate with that at this point you don't want just feedback. You want constructive criticism. Like you want to work with people who will criticize you, the application and you iterate with them based on this criticism, right? They just, they're just as happy about you and trying to create design partners. So for us, it was very important to have these small design partners who can work with us to actually prove ourselves as, as valuable in a single domain, right? Now we need to find a way to scale this up across several domains. And how do you do that without sacrificing, like how do you, open into other domains without sacrificing the original domain you came from. So there's a lot of things to learn. Again, I, we are in the middle of this. Honestly, I forced my way through half of this, right? Like I didn't know what I was doing. I had ideas. I think it's more luck at this point. Not luck. No, we did work. We did work a lot. We did sleepless nights and everything. But I think in the last two years, we became more mature and started thinking more about product. And as I said, like our CEO, Neil and, and Dominic, our head of product are putting everything behind being a product-led organization, not just a tech-led organization. That's super interesting. I love to hear that that's the way you're thinking about it. I was just curious what other domains you're looking at pushing into, if you can say. So we are going to start moving into ETL a bit more. We're trying to see how we can fit in specific ML scenarios. I can't say more about the other, though. Do you think you'll take the same approach as in terms of value proposition, like low cost, good enough latency? Yes, that's definitely one thing. But there's also, so this is, this is, the, this is the values we're, we're bringing to the customer, but also now our internal values are different. Now it's more of move with urgency and high velocity, as we said before, right? Think big, work small. 
the values in terms of values we're going to take to the customers, the same ones. And we're trying, maybe we'll add some more, but it's still going to be low cost and large scale. And internally, we're just becoming more, excuse my, excuse my French, agile. I hate that word so much. Should be put with scrum. It's painful, but everyone knows what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, see, I have opinions here around scrum. I think scrum should be only used in terms of I scrum my pants or something like that. Oh, no. <laughs> well, it's a rugby term, right? Like, that's where it should probably stay. No, it's a, it's a rugby term. Yeah, so it's just, it should stay there. But Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Yeah, I like the being flexible. I like the just like continuous feedback and how you all have set up to like talk with your customers. Because you mentioned earlier that like you might open source some of your projects. And I'm just curious, like what goes into that decision for you when you're going to do that? Like what makes you think this project would be good for open source or when you think actually we need to like keep it? No, so we, we, we open source libraries, right? We actually do that already. And some other big organizations use our libraries. Even our competitors use our libraries. That we do. The whole product itself, or at least a big part of the product, like the one like databases, like, I'm not sure we're going to open source that, at least not anytime soon. And if we open source, it's going to be at a point where the value add it brings is nothing compared to how well our product is. Right, so if you can replace whatever is in the back with, 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 with the storage engine we have in the back with something else, and the product doesn't get affected, that's when we open source it. That's interesting. That makes sense to me. But yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I just wanted to make sure to circle back since you have this big history in open source. Yeah, I'm curious if you see burning me out, <laughs> burning you out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Yeah, like because it's heck, you know we're about to be in October here. Do you have any advice or strategies as a maintainer for? not getting burnt out during the next couple of weeks besides like hide in a cave and without internet access <laughs> stay away from reddit and hacker news that's that, that's my goal for october now and because i'm always afraid of getting too attached to an idea or too motivated or excited by an idea that i drift away from what i'm actually supposed to be doing uh last question is is there anything else you would like to promote yeah check out our website i think that's at axiom.co check it out sign up and uh, come on our discord and talk to me yeah. I don't bite, sometimes grumpy, but that's just because of lack of sleep in the morning. But, you know, around midday, I'm good. And if you're ever in Berlin and you want to hang out, I'm more than willing to hang out. Ooh, that's awesome. Yeah. Berlin is great. I was there a couple years ago, but no plans to go back anytime soon. But maybe I'll keep that in mind. You can subscribe to the show and find notes along with a complete transcript for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at Victoria's G. And this podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Did you know ThoughtBot has a referral program? If you introduce us to someone looking for a design or development partner, we will compensate you if they decide to work with us. More info on our website at tbot.io slash referral, or you can email us at referrals at thoughtbot.com with any questions.